This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Uh, This is one that I am very excited for. Not only do we have an exceptional guest today, but also one of my good friends, Brian Stan. Brian is a retired American mixed martial artist and decorated U.S. Marine who competed as a middleweight in the Ultimate Fighting Championship following his military service. After an impactful military career, Brian fought for eight years in the UFC before serving as a color commentator for UFC and Fox Sports. He also spent nine years as the CEO of Hire Heroes USA, a nonprofit dedicated to helping veterans enter the workforce. Brian currently serves as the COO of First Key Homes, a leading and growing provider of single-family rental homes nationwide. A proud father of three beautiful daughters, Brian is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and holds an MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. Welcome to The Resilient Life, Brian. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thank you for that wonderful intro. Yes. Well, as I said, Brian not only is going to be an awesome guest, I'm so excited for this conversation, but I was thinking about it, Brian, I think the first time I met you um, was probably, was probably, it was Travis's, well, second plebe year, we'll call it, his second plebe year. So uh, you were a, you were a sophomore at the Naval Academy, football player there, mm-hmm. and um and I remember that Travis speaking about you, and I've told you this before, you know, Travis, he always found kinship in people from, you know, common things. And you were another PA boy attending the Naval Academy. And yeah. you hailed from Scranton, um, which my all-time favorite show uh, uh, ever, The Office, uh was uh, based off of. And, you know, I remember Travis talking about you and he spoke so highly of you and just your commitment to, I think there's a couple of different types of people at the midshipmen at the Naval Academy. I think there's those that come in and don't really know what they're going to expect. And I think sometimes they're thrown a little bit for a loop and all of the rigors that go along with it. And there's others that just flourish and thrive and, um, adhere to the discipline and dedication it takes to be a midshipman. And, and not only was my brother one of those, but, but you were as well. And I I think he found that common theme with you. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that you guys bonded so much. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny. You know, we, we both, we both cared about, you know, the academics, the athletics, but then also, you know, the, the military performance side of it. Um, yet at times struggled with a balance, right? Because at the end of the day, all these things that you are really focused on and want to perform well, and you're also a kid, you're also a college kid, right? So you also want to have fun and you hear about the experiences your, your friends from high school are having and balancing all of that and, uh, and trying to conform to the rigors of the Naval Academy and the expectations. Um, <clears throat> you know, we shared in a lot of ups and downs and I'll tell you, and it, it kind of coincides with the name of this podcast, but those ups and downs are really what form you. And, and I, I think back, had I had a perfect time at the Naval Academy, um, I don't think I would have been as prepared, you know, to be an officer. Um, so th- those down times are really essential to getting you to one, to be the person you want to be to learning from those mistakes, but then also being able to deal with adversity and, Hey, there's going to be times where you let yourself down and you let other people down. Um, and it's, it's usually for really competitive people. It's usually easier for them to obtain forgiveness from other people, um, than it is from themselves. And both travel and Travis and I would struggle with that. We were our own hardest critics 
and, and, and getting ourselves to forgive ourselves for making a mistake was tough. And I think the Naval Academy really helped us in doing that, um, as well as athletics, right? The athletics there too, it, it helps you to forgive yourself so you can be confident, move on and grow because as, as a leader, you don't have time. There's no time for sulking. There's no time for feeling sorry for yourself. Um, and you don't really get days off from leadership. So you've got to be able to recover quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about what drove you to attend the Naval Academy. Now, you were born on a military base mm -hmm. in Japan. That's right. Um, but then what was it? Was it that and just kind of having that imbued in you, being born in a, in a military environment? Like what drove you to attend the, the Naval Academy? You know, I think that one of the biggest things, um, the, the aura around the military academies was such that, hey, this was the harder path. This was the path less chosen. Um, why would you want to do that to yourself? Why would you want to go do that? And, and those things, you know, to, to alphas tend to attract you like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not supposed to, okay, then that's what I want to go do. You're telling me I shouldn't, then I'm going to. Um, the other piece was, I was, I was always pretty intense. I was always really serious. And I got, I got teased a lot by my family for growing up. And um, in high school, I tended to take things very serious. And, and it sometimes would make, uh, make it difficult to maintain friendships and relationships because every practice mattered to me. Every class mattered to me. And it's sometimes it's a little much for people when they're 16 and 17 years old. Yeah. So um, I thought, okay, you know, here are institutions that really people who are more serious about life can thrive. And there was just this attraction to it. And as I started getting recruited by these really good schools, um, it got me excited. I didn't think, you know, some kid from Scranton can not only, you know, go to college and go to a good institution, but now, you know, because my combination of academics and athletics, I had some opportunities here to maybe go to a really good institution. And so I remember I went to West Point the first time on a Friday with my mom and the coaching staff was supposed to have a player there to meet me. And then the recruiting coordinator was just to meet me for lunch there and kind of show me around. Well, somehow they got their wires crossed and nobody showed. And someone from the football team saw me there and he grabbed my mom and I and he toured us all around and he apologized for them for getting their meeting. Um, well, on Monday, we went to go see the Naval Academy and I had no appointment there. I walked up to their football offices. I handed them my tape. I said, you know, I've gotten letters from you guys, but we haven't met. And their coaching staff that day could not have been nicer to my mom. I mean, they made her feel so important. And obviously the, gosh, I mean, the, 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 the campus is beautiful. The yeah. institution's very prestigious. And I just fell in love with it. And I couldn't believe how respectful they were of my mom. And I remember when I told the head coach at Army that following week, that, you know, they forgot and like, hey, Navy was very well prepared and their coaching staff called me if they watched my tape. I was sold at that point. I was a junior um, and I really didn't give any other school that was recruiting me a chance. I just I wanted to go there. And there was a, um, a kid two grades above me in my high school. His name was Clint Cornell. And he was a phenomenal athlete. He was state champion in both swimming and track. He broke all broke all the state records in swimming. Um, he was also a phenomenal student and he could have gone to any school in the country. He got full scholarships to all of them. Stanford. He got into every Ivy league school um, and then every major swimming school, full scholarship. And he chose to go to the Naval Academy. Wow. And I really looked up to him. This was a kid where both athletically, academically, he was great, but also as a kid, like character wise, spot on. And I want, I emulated him. And when he made that choice, it really intrigued me. What made you, want to go there. And when he would come home from the academy and tell me about it, I was hooked from that point on. And his younger brother was also one of, you know, was really the only guy from high school I still communicate with. We're very close friends. He would end up being an officer in the military as well, all three of us. So that's really where it started. And as I look back, God, I mean, I'm getting old. I'm pushing on a 20 year reunion here. Um, I don't regret it at all. You know, I, I think if, if given the opportunity, I would I would choose it every single time. There's zero regrets for knowing that. Yeah, and you know, you think about it. I think about it a lot, and and I should I should preface this. I I mentioned it in the beginning when I said I met you Travis's second plebe year. So for those that don't know, Travis went to the Naval Academy 
entered in class would would have been class of 2003 you're graduating class and um and he ended up leaving and you talked about the, some of the challenges at the naval academy um hearing what your high school friends are doing and everybody else and and i was i was that person because travis and i being a year apart he was a freshman i was a sophomore in college and I was the one not really understanding when I'm calling him up and telling him, oh my gosh, I'm going to this frat party and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, that he didn't have those same options as a freshman or a plebe as it's called at the Naval Academy. And, um, and I mean, it was more than that, but I think, you know, it, it made him question things to the point where after that um, winter break, he left the academy. And he went to Drexel, walked on to the lacrosse team, started as a freshman on the Drexel lacrosse team. And I'll never forget when he called me and he said it was probably, you know, April at this point, March or April. And he said, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have left the Naval Academy. And I'm like, dad's going to kill you. And I'm, you know, well, I don't know what you're going to do. I'm like, I guess tell him. And, you know, he went back to my dad and he shared with my dad that, he made a mistake and he wanted to go back. And I remember my dad saying, you know, well, it's virtually impossible, but if you want to do it, it's, it's all on you. Go for it. And my dad drove Travis to Annapolis, but that's kind of as far, like parked and said, walk and see what you can do. And he ended up getting back in. And, you know, he talked a lot about just that idea of him leaving and seeing this. I, you know, he talked a lot about when he was at Drexel it was a different kind of kid that was there. And, you know, he realized what he was missing by leaving the Naval Academy. Um, so we went back and he's now class of 2004. He's a year behind you because he actually has to repeat the entire plebe year again, including plebe summer, which is not fun and very demanding. And he knew I've got to do it all over again, but he did it. Um, and so I think so much about guys like you and Travis and those that were around those years coming in as class of 2003 and class of 2004 and how you entered into the Naval Academy. You entered in in peacetime where literally there had been no major conflicts in many, 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 many years, right? Uh, The last time we had been at, well, I guess there was our brief Gulf War but mm-hmm. before that, the last major conflict was the Korean War, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about, um, my dad was a Marine for 30 years, and he, he always says, like, I did less in 30 years than this generation did in one and two years, you know, just with the, the tempo of deployments and everything happening. But you guys entered the academy in peacetime, and then... September 11, 2001 happens and everything changes. It was, um, it's so hard to, to try to describe to people to have them comprehend you're 18 years old and you are making a decision and signing on a dotted line that basically says for the next nine years, I'm committed, right? Cause you owe four years of college and then five years minimum of service. If you choose to be a pilot, right? It, it could be, it could be much longer. Right? You could be looking at 13 years total commitment that you're signing up for at age 18. That's a lot. Yeah. And and every single freshman thinks about that while they're there. Wow. I mean, am I really ready to make that kind of commitment? It's hard. And you talk about 9-11 and how much it changed. Um, God, it almost feels like the institution was completely different. And by the time I was a senior, we had already had friends that were that were then deploying to Iraq during that time. And, you know, uh, you've heard me tell the story and how crazy it is um, as we got older. Right. Quickly having having friends um, that were killed in action. Yeah. You know, in fact, I remember um, at one of my amateur fights during infantry officer course. Right. I had a fight that night and I'm in a hotel room. And the phone rings and Travis's face goes blank. And I'm like, what's wrong, Travis? And he doesn't want to tell me. And I'm like, look, just, just, I I knew because at that time we were getting these phone calls more and more frequently of of friends of ours who were wounded. And that's when Travis told me that JP Blacksmith was killed. 
And here we were gearing up for an athletic competition and the amount of sadness and guilt um, coupled with appreciation and, and just your sur- sheer surprise. Like, you know, to me, JP was like the all American guy. You can't kill that guy. He's six, three blue eyes built, like built like a Greek God. There's no way. And, um, it's, it was such a change and it's such a, a different life that I give so much credit to these young men and women, uh, who have gone over the last 10 to 15 years who they signed up knowing, right. And I, I am going to war. I'm 18 years old and I'm going to commit for the next nine years of my life, knowing that a portion of that is going to be spent in combat operations. That speaks a tremendous amount about those young men and women um, who are making that choice at that age. And I think it's, <clears throat> it is something that we overlook in this country. When you think about the impact uh, of having an all volunteer force, and the things that feed into that, right? You and I both do a lot of work in veteran service organizations and helping them transition um, and not just having a successful transition, but finding real success and happiness in life. Because if the younger generation of high school kids look at the, the warrior class of our country and they look at them as victims or losers or like only people who have nothing going on in their life volunteer to go serve in the military, we're in a very dangerous place. And our all volunteer force will go away and we would have to have a draft and um, not to mention the economic impact that happens if they don't make a good transition and how much money it costs this country and tax dollars to take care of them. Right. So uh, it's incredible. And I think that organizations like Hire Heroes USA, like Travis Manning Foundation, people like you and the people you work with who have dedicated their lives towards this warrior class. what they do for the power of this nation and and the power of our U.S. military to keep that warrior class viewed upon as elite, viewed upon with prestige so that we can attract those young men and women out of high school who will make that commitment and say, I will do this. It is so powerful for our nation because we forget how evil the world can be, right? And the reason that evil never reaches our shores very often is because of those men and women. Um, and so it just, it, it makes us all, and we should take great pride in, in, in some of the work we've done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about that a lot too, you know, just this idea, not only the, the contrast of you guys entering into essentially the military when you entered into the Naval Academy in, in a peaceful time and those that have signed up post to September 11th um, and the the credit that they deserve for stepping forward. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think we shouldn't be blind to the fact that some people probably would have made a different decision having known, you know, and, and um, it's pretty incredible. And I, and I think, you know, I definitely wanted to talk about that. I, I remember hearing when I think it was Ronnie Winchester was killed And that was the first person I didn't know him, but he was a Naval Academy grad. And just hearing that someone from the Naval Academy, a Marine from the Naval Academy had been killed was like, you know, it it all of a sudden put everything in perspective. And, um, and then I remember when JP was killed uh, because of the effect it had on Travis, the effect it had on you and, um, and again, it was one of those, like, how could, how could J.P. Blacksmith be dead? He was just like this all-American guy. I don't know. It, 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 for me, it hit me because it made me feel like, wow. And at this point, Travis had not deployed yet. You hadn't deployed yet. And, mm-hmm. you know, you knew that that time was coming. Um, yeah. But I'm trying to think back. I'd love to talk a little bit about, and I'm trying to find the sequence Ronnie Winchester was killed. And then was your friend Brett, was that before JP? Um, It was. So we found out um, that Ronnie Winchester had passed away on a Thursday. Um, And and then the following, I believe it was the following Monday, everybody started calling each other. Or it was Sunday, excuse me. The following Sunday, everybody found out about Brett. 
And I remember it was actually Paul Fisher, a fellow Pennsylvania guy who was yeah. in my company at the Naval Academy called me hysterically crying, telling me that Brett was dead. And I said, no, it's not Brett. It was Ronnie Winchester. Ronnie died. He, he died in Iraq. And, and he was like, no. And I couldn't believe when, you know, when Brett passed away, it was, I mean, such, it was so surprising, right? For, wait a minute, how did he die? Brett's, Brett's in North Carolina. Um, and it's, it's a pretty crazy story because I would end up the, the deployment that Ronnie Winchester was killed in. Um, I actually got to Iraq at the end of that deployment and I turned over with his exact platoon and the platoon commander that replaced him. And so I had the chance to meet with a bunch of Ronnie's Marines and hear about the type of leader he was. And I mean, those kids would lay down for him. They loved him. And, and Ronnie was Ronnie was a fighter. He was a warrior through and through. Um, and fellow football player yeah, with you at Navy. Was that? I said, and fellow football player, him and JP. Fellow football player. Both played football. We would always have a senior would give a speech on the on the Friday walkthrough to the team before the game on Saturday. And I remember, I'll never forget his. And I remember him talking about, you know, I may not be the greatest offensive lineman. I may not be the greatest student. I may not be great at this and great at that. But I'll tell you what I am great at. And that's fighting. You beat me in a fight and I'm coming back with a bat. You knock me down and I've got the bat, I'll come back with a rock. I'm never going to stop stepping back up to the plate and fighting. And not just for myself, but for all of you next to me. And that was his mentality. Yeah. That was his mentality. Um, and it was wild how interconnected all of that was because obviously I turned over with Ronnie's platoon. I ended up going to the unit that Brett Harmon was in. Brett Harmon was in 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. And that's where I actually joined. And so I met Brett's Marines and we actually named the battle position um, in Iraq during my first deployment called a BP Harmon when we established it after Brett. And then obviously Travis and I traveled to, to Brett's funeral together where well, Joel shared. Yeah. Let's, ta let's talk first, just so the listeners understand. So Brett was a Naval Academy grad with you guys who was actually home from deployment. Yeah. And just tell the story of what happened to him. Sure. Um, you know, Brett Harmon went with a bunch of Marines, actually great friends of mine now, uh, Joe Clemmy, who was one of his very close friends from the basic school and infantry course. They went to an NC State football game and some of Brett's great friends from Chicago flew in to visit him. And, and Brett was just this infectious personality who was such a great friend. And so he always had people traveling in to see him because people liked him so much. Uh, Anyways, they're at this tailgate at an NC State football game, having a good time, and they see this car driving through the tailgater wildly, and it almost hits a kid. And so they wave down this car, and two gentlemen get out of the car screaming at them and start a fight with them, and they realize that these gentlemen are drunk. They're drinking and driving, and they're going to hurt somebody. And it, it, a fist fight actually ensues. And obviously, Brett Harmon being a wrestler at the Naval Academy, being a Marine, he could handle himself fine. I think they neutralized everything and sent the kids packing and leaving. Go home. You need to leave. And everybody at the tailgate is all excited. They got these troublemakers out of there. Well, several hours later, um, after the game was over at the tailgate, the two gentlemen return and they return with a firearm. And they go up to Brett's friend from Chicago um, uh, and shoot him point blank. And as Brett sees this, he runs up to stop them and, and jump in front of the gun and, and he gets shot as well. And uh, he would eventually die in Joe Clemmy's arms in an ambulance. And um, God, I remember hearing the story from Joe Clemmy when, when I joined 3-2, but it was just heartbreaking to see someone with so much promise, so much leadership and so much to give pass away like that. But at the same time, it's just... You know, when you go to the Naval Academy or you join the military and you get around these people who make the choice we talked about, it's really not that surprising. These are men and women when when they hear gunfire, when they hear a problem, when they hear people who need help, they run to it, not away from it. They think externally about the other people long before they think of themselves. Yeah. And you just don't find that in everybody. And uh, I, I think sometimes about that act and what that was like, that split second decision that Brett had to make when he sees that firearm out, triggers already been pulled and, and, and one person already hit it point blank range and to make the choice to run and get in the way of that and try and take that weapon. Um, that's an, it's an incredible decision to make at such a young age and just speaks volumes about the man that, that Brett was. Yeah. So 
I want you to continue on with the story because I think this is something that you wrote about in your book, mm-hmm. The Heart for the Fight. And um, it's I just think it's such a such an awesome story. You're traveling to Brett's funeral with Travis. Yeah. And the um former head wrestling coach of the Naval Academy, Joel Sherritt. Mm-hmm. And Joel, Joel has some of the plane and you know, Joel, Joel's another intense guy and he really fell in love with all the leadership aspects of the military academy. He says, look, I know you guys are hurting right now. I know you're confused. And what I want you to do on this plane ride um, is I want you guys to write your own eulogy. It's an exercise in kind of overcoming grief and really remembering your friend and thinking about, hey, what would you want written about you? What would you want said about you? And then I want you to think about, you know, the things that would be said about Brett, how that aligns with the man that he was. And Travis had such a hard time with it. And I remember he was getting really frustrated. And part of it was just sadness, right? I mean, um, Brett was a brother to him and uh, he had a hard time really thinking about what, what do I want said about me? One, you know, he just wasn't ready to go and say goodbye to anything. And uh, the other thing was he was just humble, right? Anything, anything that he wrote down that he he wanted people to think about him and his time here, he felt really weird writing. Like, I don't want to write this and, and think that somebody's going to say something like this about me. Maybe they'll all just laugh, you know, <laughs> nobody better cry. And so, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, when we were carrying Travis, uh, talking to Joel about that. And, you know, the look in both of our eyes, you know, what are the odds, right, on the way that, that, that this would happen? And now Joel was going to deliver that eulogy. Um, that's just, it's something I think about all the time. You know, I keep the prayer card that you guys had at Travis's funeral. I always keep it in my car. I yeah. always keep it there because I just feel like he's, he's keeping an eye on me and my kids, yeah. you know, and, and um, you just kind of want him looking over them. And if he can, you know, like he would just get in the way and keep them out of trouble and keep them safe. So anyways, it's, uh, it's so intense to think about. And, um, well, do you remember what he lines up and that, Hey, you know, not only would, would Travis pass and Joe would give the eulogy. Travis is the one who told me about JP Blacksmith, my second deployment to Iraq, I would end up turning over with JP Blacksmith's company. And I met all of his old Marines. I met the lieutenants he served with, um, and, and my battalion commander at the time was JP's executive officer. It was the one who zipped up JP's body bag. Um, and so just that interconnectivity because it's such a small community. I remember too, and, and it's funny because Joel did deliver the eulogy at Travis's funeral. Um, I was, and I, I regret it a lot because, you know, I was asked to speak and I did, but I went up and read a poem because I didn't think I could gather myself to do anything than read something very rehearsed. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I get to, I get to uh, speak about him enough now, but you know, I wish I would have been able to stand there in that room. But I also remember, you know, to finish up that story, Travis did have a hard time putting words to paper and Um, you talked about it in your book, but Joel kept saying that he, you know, he would write something and then he'd cross it out. He'd write something again and cross it out. But what he ended up putting on that paper was just one line. And it was Travis Mannion was a man who wasn't afraid to stand up for what is right. And, um, and I think that, uh, that's the truth. That's, that's who he was, right? That's exactly who he was. Um, so I want to talk a little bit because I love telling people, you know, I don't know if it's too far of a stretch, but you know, when, when people talk about Brian Stan and I'll say, Oh, you know, if it comes up in UFC and I'm like, well, Brian Stan, I know a UFC fighter. And they're like, Oh, you know, Brian Stan. Well, yeah, of course I do. You know? And, and then I, I'm very quick to say, well, you know, Travis was one of his first quarter men, you know, and, and helped him out with, uh, helped him out on the mat with some of the wrestling moves. And I'd love to dive into a little bit because, you know, how does a Marine become a UFC fighter? I mean, it, it essentially happened in the Marine Corps. Um, yeah. That's where it started. So tell us a little bit about that journey and the journey from, you know, 
the Marine doing some amateur fights to all of a sudden you're on the big stage and I'm ordering your pay-per-view and then holding my hands over my eyes um, because I can't bear <laughs> yeah. to watch you being in a fight. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's so typical of guys like, you know, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to compare myself to Travis in every aspect for sure. Um, it's just a different level, but we were always searching for like the next most intense thing. And I had, when I finished my gray belt McMath, the instructor at the time actually showed us some UFC footage of the moves we were learning. And at that point, I really realized, wait a minute, you know, I'm actually for the first time learning some practical moves that could be used in a real street fight. And I met some of the guys that taught at the Martial Arts Center of Excellence in Quantico and found out that they were doing grappling tournaments. They had this one master gunnery sergeant, Ricardo Sanders, who was doing tie fights and kickboxing fights all over the country on his weekends. And I was like, okay, Enough so. I got to sign up for one of these. And they had us reading a lot of these different books on the psychology of combat. And in some of them, it really talked a lot about warriors freezing up in combat, not being able to pull the trigger or fire accurately, panicking. Um, and that's every officer's worst fear. In the heat of the moment, when I need to be making the calls and they're looking at me for answers, when the rounds are flying and we're clearing rooms, uh, will I be there? Will I be the person I want to be? Will I be the leader I want to be? Or will I fold under the anxiety and the pressure? And I thought, okay, if I can schedule some of these sanctioned fist fights and deal with that anxiety, because I remember getting in street fights as a kid, that was the worst thing was all the nerves that you would get, then maybe that will help me. And so that's what I did. I figured, okay, I'll go get two or three amateur fights. People will think I'm a badass cool. It'll give me some confidence. And then that'll be that. Right. And so I would find these, these people on base to help me train. And here, this person did some kickboxing. This person did some golden gloves, boxing. Um, Travis did some wrestling. And, and so I had asked that master gunnery sergeant to start training me in kickboxing. I signed up for a local school out in town in jujitsu to start getting some work there. And, and then Travis and I would routinely there was this one corner room at the basic school that was like their dojo and it was a dump, but it was, it was just all we had. And I got the key to it. So he and I would go up there like eight 30, nine o'clock at night, blast some music and beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> no clue about head trauma, any of that stuff. Right. We were just going at it. And my favorite parts would be when Travis would obviously try to kickbox with me. <laughs> because those would be the moments that I would win. Yeah. When I would kick him in the leg to the point where he no longer liked it, Travis would hit me with a double leg that I had no, me I, mean, I had no chance in hell of stopping. And then he would get on top of me and he would punch me into a pulp until the <laughs> bell rang or I could kick him off and maybe luckily get up the wall. And then we would rinse and repeat over and over again. <laughs> and, you know, these, these lieutenants would see us kind of like walking down from this room covered in sweat, blood, gloves hanging off our shoulder. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? Right. And, and so some people would sometimes venture in and want to participate, but it really, it started from that. And Travis also wanted to compete. And when I, when I got back from my first deployment, I remember uh, one of the gunnery sergeants I trained with from the mace, he said to me, Hey, look, You've done a couple of these amateur fights and he cornered me with Travis in the fight that I lost right after we found out JP had died. It just wasn't there mentally. Um, I remember he said like, stop doing this for free. At least get paid to do it. You know, the Marine Corps is probably not gonna know about it. You could always try and request that they would allow it. And so I took him up on that. When I got back from Iraq, actually it was actually the week before I get back from Iraq, I got on Kuwait, I got on some internet sort of emailing these little captions that they had on these fight websites, world extreme cage fighting, sport fight. And I was emailing them, telling them, Hey, look, I've got a two in one amateur record. I want to be pro. I can't fight until this date because I'm currently in Iraq. And, you know, one of the promoters called me, he passed and look, I need you to go get some pro fights. And that was the WEC. And out of nowhere, Matt Linlin, who was an Olympic silver medalist, who was at the time the number one ranked UFC middleweight, gives me a call and says, Hey, I'm looking at you for my sport fight card. Uh, I had a couple of injuries drop out and I could have a fight for you in two weeks, but I'm not giving you a pro fight. You're going to fight amateur. 
I said, I'm not interested. I'm not doing this for free anymore. Um, I want to, you know, look, I want you to give me a shot. He's like, no, you don't have enough of a record. Nobody's going to want to watch you fight. And, and you're probably not going to do very well. And Matt was always this really blunt guy. And I said, okay, I get it. So I can go fight for my country, right? But I can't fight in your ring on your Saturday night car. Listen, I may not be any good, but whoever I fight is in for a fight. I promise you that wherever he puts me in that ring or that cage, whatever you have in your setup, I'm going to be swinging at him as hard as I can. So give me a shot. So he says, finally, okay, fine. I've got to fight for you 205 pounds, but you're fighting one of my guys that trains me at Team Quest. Um, his name is Aaron Stark. He was an all Big Ten wrestler at University of Wisconsin. Um, and he's been a pro. How do you feel about that? It's like, I'll take it. He's like, well, you got to tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, well, um, I'm a striker and I've been training for, you know, about a year, but I had to take six months off or seven months off while I was in Iraq, but I tried to train while I was out there still. And um, he's like, okay, great. Uh, the weigh-ins are going to be on Friday fights on Saturday. So I'll fly you out here on Wednesday. I said, no, the fight's in eight days now after these negotiations. I said, I can't get the time off from work. I'm a full-time officer. I'll leave on the last flight out Friday night out of Jacksonville. Can I weigh in the day of the fight? I'm thinking like I need him to do me a favor. It's his guy I'm fighting. He's like, yeah, perfect. You have oh, yeah. no time to cut the weight. You weigh in the day of the fight. You're going to be jet lagged. Yeah, come on in. Yeah. Um, he goes, look, I'll pay you $500, but I'm not paying your flight and I'll get you a hotel room. Done. I'm going to get paid 500 bucks. Then I looked up the flights and realized, nope, I'm losing $300 on this flight actually. <laughs> so I landed at one in the morning um, on the actual day of the fight, Saturday. And the guy who, who picked me up at the airport trained a little bit at Team Quest and knew something about my opponent. He was like, well, who's going to corner me? I said, well, I've got one guy flying in from Scranton who I don't train with and I need somebody else. He's like, well, I'll do it. I was like, you're in. So I found my corner man on the ride to the hotel, oh wait in the morning of the fight. Um, and you know, when, when, when you come back from war and just the, the intensity that you deal with there on a daily basis, I remember leaning on the corner in the ring as my opponent was walking out. We were in the Roseland or the Rose Garden Arena, which is actually the Trailblazers place. It was actually a pretty big stadium. I remember looking around, I felt so good. I was so excited to be there, which is rare. Fighters are normally throwing up in the background before they walk out because of the nerves. You know, here I am, I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. Nobody in here knows who I am, right? I got a couple of Marines knowing that I flew out for a fist fight, so I really don't want to get my ass kicked, but I remember looking at my corner like, I feel great. Uh, and anyways, the fight went as you would expect. You know, he took me down a couple of times and, you know, I didn't really know how to handle him there, but I got back up and he went for a single leg and he had my, my leg up in the air with both of his hands. So he had nothing to block his face. So with one leg on the ground, I punched him twice and he dropped. And from there, I mean, I hammer fisted him while he was holding on to my ankle, trying to take me down again. I hit him so hard, Ryan, I swear I could feel his brain shifting in his skull <laughs> oh until God. the ref stopped me. And at that point, I'm like, holy shit, I actually won. Like, what a scam. <laughs> I actually won this fight. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm training with a bunch of Marines who don't fight, you know, with no cage, no walls. Uh, I jumped up on the ropes. I'm pointing to people in the crowd. I don't know anybody. <laughs> and they're like, who is this guy? <laughs> what the hell is going on? And, uh, Anyways, it was awesome. And, you know, I had to walk home. I had to walk to my hotel from the arena because we missed the shuttle. It was just a mess and it was raining, but I didn't care. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. I remember getting back to my unit and Colonel DeGrosse, who was my new battalion commander at the time, uh, was like, Stan, how the fight go this weekend? I was like, I won, sir. He's like, I love that you do this shit on the weekends. That was his only response. Like yeah. he, he had no issue with it. Just knew that he had a Marine doing a legal fist fight on the weekends. Why not? Yeah. yeah. And then, so from there, I mean, you kind of had to win that fight for your, your career to take off because had you done what they probably expected you to do, get your butt kicked, um, yeah. that would have been it because you, you really like tried to sell yourself with the hard sell on the phone. You convinced them and then- yeah. You go out, you win, and like you said, you had nothing to lose. You're in this arena. These guys who had been training, sure, they may have had the training, but they didn't have the mental fortitude that you did when you had just been serving overseas for the last seven months. Like, there's no way they could have, there's nothing they could have done. I mean, 
There's nothing they could have done to get to where you were mentally and um, have that mental pre- you know, preparation. You go from getting shot at and blown up on a routine basis to then going into a fist fight. And the worst thing could happen is you get knocked out. You're like, okay, I'll take, I'll take those odds all day. Right. Um, it, it was interesting, you know, because of my military background, the promoter from the WEC was, was smart and he had kind of read up and found out a little bit about my military background. And he gave me my second pro fight. And he gave me a favorable matchup against this tall drink of water who was a kickboxer who I knocked down eight seconds. And, you know, a bunch of, bunch of Naval Academy guys flew in to yep. watch the fight. And they were so pissed because they spent money to come watch this thing. And it was over so quickly. But I think that was, was that the second deployment to Iraq ended up being purchased by the UFC. Okay. And the UFC decided we're going to keep the WEC brand. We're going to rebrand it, but keep the name. And we got a television contract with the Versus Network. And so six weeks of the day of me landing back from my second deployment, that promoter scheduled me for a fight. He flew me to Las Vegas and he said for a photo shoot, but what he was really doing was he wanted me to train with these UFC fighters in Las Vegas to see, is this kid any good before I invest money marketing him? Mm-hmm. So my first fight was going to be on the untelevised portion of a card for the BC. So I go out, he takes me right to Randy Couture's gym in Las Vegas. And I am now training uh, with, excuse me, no, he took me to a different gym in the morning. I get into this gym, I know nobody. And I'm in a ring about to spar with this guy named Roy Big Country Nelson. He's a 265 pound heavyweight um, that wasn't in the UFC yet, but would be soon and have a very lengthy career. I had no business being in it. I don't know what the hell, I still have sand in my ears, right? (laughs) He starts hitting me with overhand rights and almost knocks me out of the ring. I've got no mouthpiece in, and I just basically start fighting for my life. We sparred for three straight rounds that day. I am sure I lost an abundance of brain cells trying to just survive in the ring with him. That night, he takes me to Randy Couture's gym, and I'm sparring with Forrest Griffin, who had recently won the Ultimate Fighter, won his debut fight in the UFC, and the coach tells him, hey, Forrest, he's got no mouthpiece. And Forrest goes, that's okay. He's, he's, a, he's in the military, right? He's got free health care. And starts blasting me, chips my teeth. I remember going back to my hotel that night and thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I, I, I won my first two fights easy. And all of a sudden, I thought I knew what the hell I was doing. Like, I had this swelled head. Like, oh, I'm a natural at this sport. Yeah. Bullshit. You don't know a damn thing. And I remember failing... I remember feeling so weak for thinking at the time that I immediately booked a return flight uh, for a couple weeks later. You know, I'm going to take leave. I'm going to come back out here and train with these guys again. I'm not going to get scared out of doing this. And so I would go on and win a couple of fights in WEC. I won their title as an active duty Marine, which was just wild. I would then get out of the Marine Corps, lose that title, and then be moved from the WEC after that loss to the UFC. And I had built up enough of a name in the WEC that they wanted to bring me over. But the matchmaker, Joe Silva, at the time at the UFC, really had his doubts about me. He didn't like, one, he didn't like the way the WEC marketed me. They shoved me down people's throats because of my military background. He also knew I wasn't that good. And so it was basically going to be sink or swim. So I lose my debut fight in the UFC against a guy who had over 35 plus fights um, and much more experience. And then my next fight is going to be against the guy who just beat me seven months before in the WEC. I'm going to fight him for the third time. And I moved my training to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I remember going to Jackson Winkle John MMA down there in this gym full of champions and elite fighters. But the gym was a dump. It had chicken wire all on the outside of it so that homeless people and thugs didn't break the glass. It was so filthy and nasty. Yet I walk in there and there's Rashad Evans, Keith Jardine, Joey Villasenor, George St. Pierre, Nate Marquardt, all of these top 10 ranked people in their weight classes. Um, And I got the snot beat out of me. Uh, But what I noticed was they would beat me. They would beat me in different areas, but then they would teach me. And that was the culture at that gym. And because of that, right, that next fight, that I was heavily favored to lose against a guy I'd fought twice before. One time I knocked him out quick. The other time he systematically broke me down. I found a way to win that fight. 
And, and that was really, I started to learn and apply the same level of rigor and discipline you learn in the military to my training so that I could catch up to these people who had been doing this sport for years before me. How do I get this much better? Well, coach, I stink in these three areas, but for this particular fight, I really need to get better in this one area because you can't, you can't get better everywhere right. all the time. So we focused on certain areas so that I could win each fight and, and stay in the UFC. And, and eventually it really began to click. And I got a fight against a guy named Chris Lieben, who was a top 10 guy. I was a three to one underdog. And I went into that fight knowing that the media and the UFC don't know how much better I got and that this was going to be a really easy fight for me. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, it's kind of how it happened going from a very green infantry officer who throws a couple of punches and, and, and kicks in his off time to now being a professional in the highest rung of the sport and just trying to tread water and survive before you lose your damn job. Well, yeah. And I, I remember it was kind of this, I mean, at least for me, it was kind of this, um, and I'm sure for you too, because we all saw it, you know, you were in the WEC and it was like, oh, Brian's fighting, you know, but then you were in the UFC, you lost the first fight, but then I guess it was that second fight where you won, you weren't expected to. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, it's all American Brian Stan. Like, and yeah. you were like a name. All of a sudden it was like, Brian Stan is a name. And I remember you, I'm trying to think of, I don't know what fight it was, but it was not your eight second fight, but you called and you said, hey, uh, I want to put the the TMF, the Travis Manning Foundation logo on my shorts. Yeah. And um, we were, I, I just remember being so honored by that. But also at the same time, what you're not talking about is you had also taken a new job too. Yeah. So yeah, you're I with am. Higher uh, Heroes. Yeah. That's when you transitioned over. You're running one of the nation's leading veteran serving organizations. So it's not like, you know, these UFC fighters, they're UFC fighters. What do you do? I, I'm a UFC fighter. You mm -hmm. never had a time where you were just a fighter. You were a Marine and a fighter. Then you were in the civilian world taking on leading a large nonprofit. And you were doing that and fighting. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that transition for you, leaving the Marine Corps, entering in, you know, staying and making sure that as you leave the Marine Corps, your objective is to continue to help your men and women who have served. And, yeah. you know, you really could have gone and done, um, you could have thrown everything into the UFC and trained 12 hours a day, but you took this leap where you said, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do both things. Yeah. You know, I was really fortunate in that as I was transitioning out of the military, um, I met a man named John Bartis, who you've come to know as well. Yeah. Great and, guy. you know, never having had a father, I met a guy like John and our relationship just grew. And, you know, he's one of those people that when he gave me advice, some people, all of us have people in their lives that they just listen to mm -hmm. because they know that that person genuinely, truly cares for them. And their advice is coming from real experience, wisdom, but also love. Um, and I remember him giving me this opportunity uh, at his company, Met Assets. And that really formed because while I was still a Marine, I was being a spokesperson for this concept he had he had just started Higher Heroes USA. So I started wearing their logo on my shorts um, right before uh, Travis Main Foundation started. And I always had an intrigue that, hey, I think I could help this organization more. And so when I transitioned out and took a job, it was more along the lines of, hey, this fighting thing is cool. I have to be reasonable. I've got a kid, I've got a family, and I can't put all my eggs in this basket because if I lose a couple of fights, I'm done. And then what? Am I really, did I really go to the Naval Academy, be a Marine officer to try and pursue a fledgling fist fighting career? I had to be very realistic with my dreams. Um, and then as, you know, as my career started to take off a little bit, uh, having the opportunity to not just have that be my identity. And that was what John always encouraged me to do. He's like, Brian, just be careful right? Be careful that being a fighter doesn't now all of a sudden become your identity because you're more than that. Yeah. 
And he'd asked me, what's your real passion in life? And while I was extremely passionate about fighting and competing, I was truly passionate about leadership. And that's what really quenches um, my professional needs and, and helps me to be the best version of myself. And in leading Higher Heroes USA, not only gave me that opportunity to do that, but it also gave me the opportunity to kind of deal with the emotional part of that transition. You know, when you transition out of the military after combat, there's a lot of things going through your mind. And I had a lot of guilt. Um, part of me wanted to compete in fighting. Part of me wanted to be a family man and not travel and deploy all the time. Part of me wanted to continue leading Marines. Potentially, you know, I, I had explored some avenues on, hey, how could I go special warfare or, or um, spec ops and then maybe go to Delta. I talked to some army officers about doing that. Uh, the Marine Corps was just starting um, their unit that was going to be under the Special Operations Command. And so that was something I was always looking, also looking at. And now being in the civilian world, I had a lot of guilt. And I had found a job. I had had some success in fighting. How do I still give back and be a part of that community? Because it's so deeply entrenched in the fabric of who I am now. The Marine Corps is responsible for so much of who I am and the professional I am. And Higher Heroes really gave me that opportunity. Every day, in addition to training for fighting, we were able to build programs that could help other service members or transitioning service members and veterans and now military spouses achieve that same level of happiness. And we had huge veteran unemployment at that time. You know, the markets had crashed. This is 2008, 2009. The economy was really bad and veteran unemployment was north of 20%. Yep. You know, even officer friends of mine were having a really hard time finding a job and the jobs enlisted and officers were finding were all way under their value. You know, enlisted leaders finding hourly paid positions that they should have been competing for salary. They should have been leading teams and they were miserable. And so naturally you see mental health issues off the charts. Um, the, the VA waiting list to, to go see someone on your mental health was extensive. We were losing, right? We were losing and we were being branded by other veteran service organizations as victims, right? They were running commercials about how sad it was that we have these suicides and unemployment for veterans. And they were making us look like we're a bunch of victims walking around feeling sorry for ourselves when in reality, we were a bunch of leaders just looking for our next mission. And it, I mean, it pissed me off. I was so mad. And I remember taking a stand with Higher Heroes saying, that is not how we're gonna market. It's not how we're gonna teach. And we started going on military bases, running our own transition assistance programs, writing resumes with them, helping them to develop their strategic plan on, hey, these are my skills. This is where I want to live. This is what I want to go do. These are the certifications I need. Here's how I'm going to go attack that. Here's how I'm going to market my value proposition to an employer. And we would tell them straight out of the gate. This is how people are being portrayed and being told that you're victims. Don't you dare come into this classroom and, and address your, do not look at your transition like you have a hat in your hand. Somebody please give me something. No, go identify what it is you want and go get it because you're qualified you're excellent. Look at the things you've done. You're never going to find a job that's harder than the last one you just had, you know, in combat. And so uh, I remember devoting so much energy to it, but it was the, the challenge was obviously I could never dedicate myself fully to fighting as much as maybe other athletes were, but the gift I received in, uh, you know, to counter that was really having this other, this other thing that was so much part of my life that was giving back. Yep and wanting to build this and wanting to leverage the notoriety and the name, as you mentioned, I was building with the UFC, leverage that for the cause over here because Higher Heroes, we were able to get a lot more attention on it, leveraging that than we could have on a nonprofit budget. As you know, you know, nonprofits are judged by how little money they can spend. Whereas other companies, you look to make all kinds of strategic investments. We can't go do that, right? How dare you try to market your brand so you can grow your fundraising, so you can deliver more service to people who need them. Um, the ultimate so crux of nonprofit journey, and, and one that I'm, you know, I'm really still on. I'm still doing things every day for higher heroes and trying to help other veteran service organizations and leverage um, any success I have to do it. But you know, I, I am proud that I didn't take a more selfish route at that time. 
that I remembered where I came from. I remembered the men and women who helped me get there. Um, and more importantly, the men and women who, who never had the opportunity to go after their dreams, right? Because they died in service to our country and they had hopes and dreams. They wanted to raise a family. They wanted to have children. They wanted to go achieve that next great career and they never got that chance. And I always have this feeling like, man, I owe, I owe, no matter how far I get, no matter what I've done, I owe, we owe, we cannot forget that. Yeah. And, and, you know, you say that now, but like you really lived by that because you get into that world of the UFC and there's a lot of glitz and glam. There's a lot of big people and big names. And, and I'll never forget, you know, I would say it's probably almost after every fight, you would make mention of guys like Travis and JP and Ronnie and Winchester and Brett Harmon. And, you know, you knew that if you were saying their names at that moment after a fight, that they were on your mind leading up to that fight and during that fight. And um, so, you know, you really, you live by that every day. And I see that in you all the time. And I always say how, how grateful I am as a sister to know how much you hold my brother's memory with you. And I know that other families feel that same way. It's important, you know, throw everything away. The, the nonprofit, you know, uh, I always say, you know, Travis's name in the Travis Manning foundation, it represents this generation of men and women. But at the end of the day, like Travis was my brother, like he was my brother. And, you know, it's so, it means so much to me to know that guys like you are, are remembering and, and honoring his, his memory and his legacy from a personal perspective too. And, you know, I think that leads me, one of the other things I want to touch on uh, before we, we wrap up here is one of the things I always marvel about you is, and you talked about, like, I could have just gone full-blown fighter, but I had to think about my family. At the time, I had one daughter. You now have three being a father to you, it only takes talking to you for all of two minutes to know how that is the most important thing in your life. And now you're entering into a blended family. You've got more daughters you're taking in, a beautiful fiance. And I want you to talk a little bit about um, what it means to you to be a dad and how important that is. And again, doesn't take long to figure that out, but uh, I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, it's, it is the greatest part of life. Um, I always love nighttime is my favorite, right? When it's bedtime, because it, there's something about that moment where it's just me and my, and my daughter. Um, and I say good night to them. I always, I always make a point to tell them how much I love them, how proud of them I am. Um, and I always love, and it never loses its effect on me. They always tell me, I love you, daddy, before they go to bed and they give me a hug and kiss. And uh, God, it just, it, it, it's, it's the absolute world. And in, in all of this, right, there's nothing we do that's more important than raising our children and, and teaching them. And it's hard as, as your kids get older, right? I now have a teenager. I, I now legitimately have a, a teenager, a young woman that I'm trying to raise at the same time. You know, I've got another one who's 10 and another one who's seven. And every day, the challenge is we, we try to be so prepared and so detailed with whatever it is that we do for a living in our job. And sometimes we forget to be that detailed and diligent in, with our own children. And so those are the things that I try to focus on a lot. And when you're now blending a family, which, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people listen to this podcast, maybe they're done or doing or are going to do one day. Uh, it's hard. You're going to take into consideration so many other people's opinions. You know, here you are, you're trying to work on co-parenting with someone that you obviously could no longer be married to. Right. So there's already embedded challenges there. Um, blend in with a new family where, you know, uh, the person you love may have different ways that they want their children to be raised and, and they've got to co-parent with someone else as well. And so it brings a lot of challenges and, and number one is communication, 
right? That we could always be better at. And that's something that, that I, I continue to want to work on and, and co-parent, you know, the communication to the co-parents, but then also with the kids on how they're doing, you know, uh, I obviously as a dad, you know, there's going to be times where you discipline your kids, but I have all daughters trying to maintain the relationship where I spend time with them. I invest in them. I love being with them. Um, but at the same time, do they have a relationship with me where they feel comfortable to open up and let me know if there's something not making them happy, you know, and uh, from social things at school, who they sit with, what's going on in this world of smartphones now. Uh, and that's tricky, right? You know, you can imagine a 13 year old doesn't exactly want to sit down with her UFC fighting combat <laughs> Marine infantry officer dad and talk about boys or what one of their friends Snapchatted to them that day. Yeah. And and so, you know, uh, I, I try, I try to, to wear many hats and be very approachable with her at the same time where I'm trying to share information with her mother and share information with Michelle, my fiance on uh, maybe conversations they're having, cause she may feel more comfortable opening up on some of these things with them. Right. And it's, it's a real challenge, but it's, it's one that, that I love and my favorite my favorite time in every single day is that time when work is over and we just get that family time. The amount of laughter, my daughter's teasing me and, and, and making fun of me. You know, my oldest daughter says I'm a nerd all the time. And I was like, you know, I never in my life with the things that I've done expected <laughs> that my kid would call me a nerd, right? Literally tell me, she, I, I said, hey, honey, give me a hug. I was, she was dropping her off. She's in seventh grade now. And she looked at me, you know, she's getting dropped up for the school. I want a hug. She looked at me crazy, threw a one arm out there kind of awkwardly like this and got out of the car. She's going to be embarrassed. Other kids seeing her. Right. I'm like, God, you know, I remember being that way with my mom when I was in middle school and now I'm that person. Yeah. Um, How did we get so uncool? Right. Yeah. yeah what happened? <laughs> right? What happened? Now? I'm an old man. I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, but if I could give, if I could give any advice, you know, none of us are perfect parents, but, but for me, it's really, um, a lot of people can do the easy things in parenting, right? You could show up to the game, you can transport them to where they need to go. Uh, but there's a choice every day with our kids that we have to make. And sometimes those choices are, hey, I'm gonna pick up the remote and I'm gonna watch some TV, or I can go over there and, and help my kid with this assignment. Um, I can go do something for myself right now, or I can pick up the soccer ball um, and play with my daughter, or I can stunt them because they're working on their cheer stunts and things of that nature. And, you know, I really try to focus on that choice every day. And it may sound, you know, it, it may sound cheesy saying it because I'm on this podcast, but a lot of what drives me to make that choice for my kids each day um, is the memory of people like Travis you know, of my Marines and of my buddies who aren't here anymore, right? Because we both know the kind of father Travis would have been, right? We both know that. Yeah. I know the type of father JP would have been. JP talked about his dad all the time and having talked to JP's father, right? I, I know the type of father that Doug Champlin or Renee Martinez or Mike Brown, you know, the Marines that, that, that I lost in combat, what type of father they would have been. They don't get that opportunity. So who the hell am I to make this selfish choice and you know, watch a TV show or kick my feet up. If I've got an hour and a half before my kids go to bed for the night and I can spend it with them because that's really what I notice my kids thrive on is knowing that I make the choice for them to be with them, invest with them and spend the real time. Um, when they're studying for tests, uh, when they want to talk about their frustrations with a coach or a teacher, when they want to talk about frustrations with, with their friends, or they just want to play with me. They want to smile and laugh and beat up on dad and, 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 and be that little girl climbing all over her father. And uh, that's the best part of, of my life. And having someone like Michelle, who is so good at creating the environment, setting the stage for us to do that and keep it fun every time. Um, I've just, I've, I've never had the laughter that we have now with, you know, my three daughters, who her two daughters. So I'm literally in a sea of estrogen all day long. Uh, it's but incredible. you're the perfect you person know, we for do it. Trips, we go camping, we ride four wheelers, we play a game called capture the flag on Friday nights where we're running around in the dark, you know, trying to beat each other. 
we've got our little nicknames for our teams and um, it's incredible. And I, I try to take moments like now and just remember how grateful I am because I get those opportunities and men that I serve with are on my left or right. And, and you play the game of inches and, and you know, the, the odds weren't in their favor and I got lucky, you know, um, we've got to make the most of it. Yeah. And you don't have to be in combat, right. To, to be lucky. There's lots of people who die every day with horrible accidents or sicknesses. And right now we've got, you know, a pandemic that's going on and people are losing grandparents and parents and people, you know, to this as well. And we just can't take our time for granted because there are people who were better than us who wouldn't have, who would have invested that time and made those children's lives better. Yep. And your, your commitment to your kids, uh, it shines through. I've told you that before. Um, you have three beautiful daughters soon to have two more stepdaughters. And, uh, I, I can't think of a better person to be surrounded by the sea of estrogen. Like you're, you're almost made to be surrounded by women. You just have the perfect balance of patience and, um, and your kids always look like they're just having so much fun with dad. And I always say, you know, I've got the teenager now too. And, you know, she thinks I'm a big dork as well. And I'm like, one day, I'm like, one day you'll come around and be like, wow, mom was pretty cool. You know, yeah. mom did these things yeah. with me. So we just got to get it. We just got to get through that, that piece of things. I don't um, want to be a rush line because, you know, we're, we're old enough now, right? Like we're, we all, we, you know, we're 40 now. I don't really want I'm to be 25. Kidding. I don't know what you're talking about, but. Okay. <laughs> you look a lot younger than I am, so. Brian, I, this has been so awesome. Um, I'm so glad that we got to sit down and talk and I'm excited for people to hear more about you um, and more about your journey. I want to close today with the same question I asked everybody at the end of the podcast. And that is what does living a resilient life look like for you? You know, for me, uh, it, it looks like every day is, is a new start. Every day is a new game. And the things that went wrong yesterday, the things that went wrong in my past, the things that broke my heart in the past, um, I can let them be an anchor or I could let them be a catapult. And, you know, men like Travis, men like Willie Coprince, like Garrett Meisner, uh, like JP Blacksmith, um, they would never want their death or any grief I have about it to be an anchor around me. I dishonor them by doing so, you know, right? Spending that time with my kids to be a better father every day, try to be a better man every day, be better at my job, invest in the people I work with and my family. That's, that's the name of the game. And that's what does, that's what memorializes their memory is living this life to the absolute fullest and, and continuing to get better as a person in their memory, that's living a resilient life for me and, and, and not allowing anything to be an anchor. Um, and I hope that that example shines through my daughters because life is going to knock us all down and it's, it's, we've all been knocked down before, it's gonna happen again. Um, and there really is no other choice but to move forward. But I think sometimes we end up moving forward and we keep that anchor to slow us down. We hold that grief. We don't forgive ourselves or forgive the other people around us. We let that resentment or that anger build up. Um, and that's not resilience. Yep. I love that. Don't let your hardships be an anchor. Every single day is a new game. Brian Stan, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends, your family, with anyone you know. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Thanks so much, Brian. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan.